Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning. And the top story this morning is that President Trump was indicted on four counts uh, for a new indictment. According to The Washington Post, a grand jury has indicted the former president for multiple alleged crimes stemming from his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The four count, 45 page indictment accuses Trump of three distinct conspiracies and charges that he conspired to defraud the United States, conspired to obstruct an official proceeding and conspired against people's rights. So joining me now to discuss this and also, what I think is the much bigger story, uh, which is Hunter Biden, and we'll get to that in a moment, is my very good friend, uh, Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana. Mike, good morning. And uh, what do you make of this new indictment? Hey, Jenna. Well, big news, of course. It, it, it's no surprise at all that, that following Devin Archer's extraordinary testimony uh, to our House uh, Oversight Committee on Monday, the DOJ suddenly drops more charges against President Trump on Tuesday. You know, this is their pattern. You, if you look back, you know, in, in June, in July, and now again this month, every time there's a big development in our House investigations of Hunter Biden and the first family's, you know, crooked business dealings, brazen corruption, literally on the next calendar day, Special Counsel Jack Smith drops a new indictment or a new set of charges against Trump. So this is, this is the pattern, but I just think at the end of the day, you know, these are efforts that – distraction. They're never going to change the real problems. I mean, President Biden is in serious trouble here, and we've got, you know, a perilous moment in the history of our country. We do. And and I think that uh, the bigger story, like I said, really is Devin Archer's testimony. And um, I mean, I recall the it was the narrative from Joe Biden for years and years and from the Democrats that he never talked to Hunter Biden with his business dealings. And now suddenly it's, oh, of course he did. And that's totally OK. So what what did Devin Archer actually testify to and why, in, in your view, is this important, um, potentially moving toward impeachment? Well, Jenna, look, people get lost in all of the machinations here and the twists and turns in the story. It, it, a lot of people are just throwing their hands up, which is really the great peril of the moment. We can talk about that, too. But the, the summary of the Devin Archer uh, you know, testimony is that Joe Biden lied. I mean, this is very clear now, and you see it, as you noted, in the, in the mainstream media's pivot in their messaging. We know that he lied when he repeatedly insisted he had no knowledge of or involvement in Hunter Biden's crooked business dealings. I mean, he we know from the Devin Archer testimony, and remember, he was Hunter's best friend, his, his closest business associate. In his words, Joe Biden was the brand that they were selling, right? And and we now know that, that the president himself personally engaged in those discussions with all these, you know, foreign oligarchs and, and, and business partners of Hunter and all these crooked dealings. The president was involved in at least 20 on 20 occasions in discussions specifically about all this. So they can't hide from it. The facts are the facts. And the big question now is, what is the president hiding from? Why? Why would Joe Biden lie to the American people so emphatically for so long 
about his involvement in all these dealings. You know, did did he is he compromised? Is he is he corrupted? Is our national security threatened right now? That's what's driving our investigations, and that's why we're going to continue this in earnest. We have to. It's our duty under the Constitution. I'm speaking with Representative Mike Johnson uh, out of Congress, and and this there are so many questions here. I, I think that that you're right that the in inquiry and the investigations need to continue. And is this something that maybe the cover up is worse than the crime? That if if Joe Biden had simply come forward and said, "Yes, this is everything that I did," that 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 wouldn't itself be criminal activity. I mean, maybe, that, maybe that's actually a stupid question because I mean it seems obvious. But is it something more that that now because he has changed the narrative and pitted, pivoted for so long that this is now driving the inquiry to say what is he hiding? Well, right. I mean, because everybody you, you don't have to be a criminal investigator, a member of Congress, or or otherwise to uh, assume some things here. You know, in the law, it's it's a res ipsa matter. You know, the, the thing speaks for itself. It, it appears on its face that the president is compromised, that he is corrupted. I mean, we could we could go down the list and spend the whole program today talking about things that have made all of us scratch our heads, you know, in, in, in recent months and in the last couple of years since President Biden's been in the White House. You know, uh, one of the one of the most glaring that constituents have asked me about in the last, you know, 48 hours or so since the Archer testimony. Well, gee whiz, you know, when, when the Chinese spy balloon was allowed to float unimpeded for seven or eight days across the country and over major military installations. No one can understand why in the world the Biden administration, the White House, would not you know, take it down. Why did they allow that to happen? Well, I don't know. I'm not saying it is true, but I'm saying it certainly begs the question, does the CCP have something on the Bidens? I mean, have they, you know, has one of the payments in one of those big business dealings uh, you know, urged or compelled the president not to take appropriate action against this foreign adversary? I, I don't know. But I, I'm just telling you that's something that the American people are demanding answers to. That's one of a thousand examples uh, that we could list that, that, just, that just makes you go, hmm, you know, well, it has huge, huge and serious implications under the United States Constitution because of these activities. This is not small stuff. And if you're jeopardizing national security, we in the House have no, we, we have no option in this. We have to follow the truth where it leads. And that's what you're going to see in the coming weeks and months. And that's a very principled response to say that you have no option but to follow the Constitution and to follow the evidence where it leads, because there are some that are suggesting that uh, if an impeachment inquiry goes forward, that this is just totally political on one hand, uh, or that this is just playing into the Democrats' hands because removing uh, Joe Biden, impeaching him, and then requiring him to uh, to sit for trial in the Senate would just be playing into the Democrats' hands because either then we get Kamala Harris, which um, I don't think any conservative really wants, um, or then paving the way for some other Democrat nominee. Um, so what's your response to those critics? Yeah, it's, it's a really important point. And I've, I've been trying to make this to my folks in my district and, and to anyone else who asks about it, because that's the big question. They impeached Donald Trump twice. Why can't you guys show some spine and go impeach the president? Well, listen, I, I was on impeachment defense uh, twice for President Trump because they were completely nonsensical and frivolous. And you and I both know that. We've talked about it a, a, so many times. But impeachment is not a tool for politics. It's not supposed to be wielded. It's very in power that Congress holds. 
and and the House Democrats made a mockery of impeachment during the Trump presidency. But we, we have to reel that back in because that's a danger to our underlying system itself. And so we, you know, House Republicans acknowledge the weight of this. If if we go forward with an impeachment inquiry, which I, I personally believe is called for now, I think it's it's beyond time for that. Do that in a very sober-minded way. We we know there are certain political realities to all this, but that is not our concern. Our concern has to be the Constitution. I mean, Jenna, consider this. So we're, we're they're mounting evidence right now of bribes, extortion, and abuses of power that could not previously have been imagined. Right? I mean, what a document from a confidential FBI source alleges that the president accepted a five million dollar bribe. Right? IRS whistleblowers that come forward about Biden being pressured by Chinese companies into paying them. You know, it goes on and on and on. Well, if you look at a constitution, which is what we have to do, that is our only concern in this in this capacity. Article one uh, gives the House of Representatives uh, the, the, the the sole power of impeachment, and Article two says if you, if you are uh, the president or the vice president or a civil officer of the United States, a cabinet official, okay, you shall be removed from office on impeachment for or conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Bribery is listed as a cause for impeachment in the Constitution. So if the president of the United States, the sitting president of the United States, has been involved in a bribery scheme, I do not have a choice as a member of the House Judiciary Committee about whether or not we pursue the investigation of that. I have no choice. I have to. I took an oath to uphold the Constitution. So this is not a political calculation. We have to do what's right and what the Constitution calls for, and it's, it's just not even in dispute. I'm speaking with Representative Mike Johnson, and, and again, that is so principled because comparing and contrasting this with the two uh, impeachments of Donald Trump that were based in these theories that tried to shoehorn uh, the alleged crimes or actions into that last clause or other high crimes and misdemeanors that uh, was a political calculation and ultimately didn't result in a conviction. A bribery specifically listed in Article 2, Section 4. And if Republicans are wanting to actually follow the Constitution instead of making it a political calculation by saying, well, just because the Democrats made impeachment political, then we don't want to look political by impeachment and thereby become political. I mean, th- then you just right. you wrap yourself in knots by not actually following the Constitution. And so where uh, where is this uh, headed then in terms of a timeline? Because we are coming up on, you know, in about, in about a year, uh, the 2024 primary and uh, moving forward with impeachment. Can this can this be done quickly? Is this something where the the actual formal investigation is opened uh, in the next you know, week or so? What what is possibly the timeline? Well, that, that's that's the big question, and ultimately, the Speaker of the House, of course, will will, will make that decision. And when, when Kevin uh, has Kevin McCarthy's been asked about it, um, he says that this has to be a decision made by the entire uh, Congress. And what he means, of course, is the Republican conference, because no no Democrat in in the House is ever going to go along with this. It wouldn't matter what the evidence is, they're, because of that political calculation, they're not going to engage in it. I mean, I'll be shocked if any of them do. So. This is a decision that the House Republican Conference has to make in earnest, and I think quickly, again, not because of the calendar, not because we're under the Constitution, you know, not because we're headed into a presidential election, but because this is where the evidence leads us. And I think the developments from Devin Archer is just one more straw that is about to, about to break the camel's back. I think an impeachment inquiry, you heard Speaker McCarthy suggesting that over the last week or so, 
that that's an appropriate step. I personally believe it is. I, I think we have to. I think now the evidence leads us to that. And again, we have to follow the truth wherever it leads. You know, I, I, I would just say this overall, Jenna. I mean, and you and I have talked about this offline. I mean, I, I, this is a really perilous moment in the history of our country for a lot of reasons, you know, but not the least of which is because there's now this widespread lack of faith in our, in our critical institutions themselves. I mean, you got the Biden DOJ. First, they try to politicize our criminal justice system. And now, with this latest indictment of Trump, they're trying to criminalize the political speech and behavior of the leading opponent of the sitting president. I mean, the Biden DOJ is doing serious and lasting damage with all these political hit jobs and everything they're involved in. There's a real risk now that millions of Americans are never again going to trust our justice system. And you can't hold a constitutional republic together if people lose that. And and because what they see is an actual two-tiered system. They they're beginning to just throw their hands up and say what's the point? And and all of us this is two two points, okay? All of us need to be praying praying that we can resettle all this. I mean, God help us in this endeavor because we're going to lose the country if we don't. And part of that is our actions and our behavior, you know, as as duly elected representatives of the people in the house. We have to do our constitutional duty, we have to do it methodically and without regard to politics and I I'm one of the voices in the room. I'm the vice chairman of the House Republicans, as you know, and I'm on the committee of jurisdiction. I'm going to continue to say that and, and urge me to do that, do the right thing, because then we'll have God's favor in all of it, right? And and that's that's a big thing. Absolutely. And we will be praying for you uh, in that endeavor. And I think those are wise words uh, to our AFR family and uh, to every Christian who is listening who cares about the future of this country. It's not about just Republican versus Democrat or political calculations. It's about doing the right thing and ultimately uh, praying for favor to protect and preserve uh, this great nation. And so in just the last uh, literally probably 30 seconds I have with you here as well, um, Representative Johnson, and thank you so much for coming on and giving us these words of encouragement. Um, this in context, I think, is so important as well when we look at uh, how far back this actually stems with Hunter Biden, because it's not just right now the sitting president. This was when Joe Biden was the vice president. And then remember, this was the first impeachment of Donald Trump was over the phone call uh, to Zelensky over asking what's going on with Burisma. So this has been a long history. And uh, we just we really earnestly will be praying for you. So thank you so much for your time today. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back, and we will get back to the Devin Archer testimony in a few minutes. But right now, I'd like to bring in my next guest, Carly Atchison, who is the new spokeswoman for the Ron DeSantis for President campaign. And I'm very pleased that she joins me now. So, Carly, good morning. And I want to ask you first about this new Declaration of Economic Independence that was unveiled this week. Uh, This is a really amazing plan from the governor. Well, good morning, Jenna, and good morning to all your listeners. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, this is really exciting. This was a really well-received uh, 10-point plan that the governor rolled out in New Hampshire, actually at a manufacturing facility. And when we look at kind of the, from an overall perspective, what the governor is presenting here, 
first of all, we know this, but just to reiterate, America is in a state of decline militarily, culturally, economically, and the American dream is slipping away from our nation's middle class, and we have to reverse that. That's why President, the governor is running for president. Um, and so this 10-point plan is really comprehensive. There's a lot of detail in there. It's really bold, as is uh, kind of the norm for Governor DeSantis. He leads very boldly, tackling everything from being aggressive uh, with China, taking control back of our economy from, the, uh, from them, uh, achieving 3% growth unleashing American energy independence. So there's a lot in there. It's really bold. It's really forward looking. And it was really well received in New Hampshire. Yeah. And and I think that this type of boldness uh, is being really well received. And so a lot of the criticism currently of the governor's campaign is that there just doesn't seem to be momentum in the polls. But um, do you see that in the early states in the strategy for um, how he's going out and actually talking to the grassroots and doing uh, some of these events in uh, the early states? Absolutely. If you're just paying attention to these national polls, uh, you're missing what's really happening on the ground in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. So Governor DeSantis was out in Iowa for a bus tour, doing meet and greets, uh, going to diners, talking to Iowa caucus goers. There's a lot of momentum on the ground in Iowa. We have 39 state legislators who have stepped up and endorsed Governor DeSantis. Uh, we've got great grassroots support from local pastors, local sheriffs. And we're seeing the same thing in New Hampshire. He actually just uh, closed up a, a four-day tour throughout the Granite State, again, meeting with voters, talking with them, unveiling this economic plan, which that's where a lot of Americans are feeling like they want to hear, what is the plan moving forward? How are you going to make my life better? That's what Governor DeSantis is delivering on the ground directly to those voters. That's what's going to make the difference at the end of the day. These national polls, there's no such thing as a national primary. Uh, if the polls were right, then Jeb Bush would have been president in 2016. And so that's obviously not what happened. So Governor DeSantis is extremely focused on our state strategy. It's working. We feel really good about it. We're getting really great reception on the ground. And so he's just going to continue to outwork everybody uh, and, and, and continue to do that. Yeah, and I'm speaking with uh, Carly Atchison, who is the spokeswoman for the uh, Governor DeSantis's uh, presidential run. And and Carly, I, I think that that's so true about the national polls and how the pushback is, well, pack it up you know, a year in advance and just go home because somehow the polls are suggesting otherwise. Well, Donald Trump would have done that in 2016 against Hillary Clinton or even in the primary, as you mentioned, <laughs> right. against Jeb Bush. So, you know, these are things that we just that I think are, are ridiculous to talk about right now. But in just the last about two minutes I have with you, um, I think for a lot of people who have obviously 100 uh, percent name recognition with Donald Trump, Trump. They know who he is, uh, what they're getting, you know, good and bad. Uh, but for a lot of people who are really getting to know Governor DeSantis, uh, what are some points that that you would like to highlight in terms of what they should be focused on with who he is and why he's running? Absolutely. I appreciate the top opportunity to talk about this because Governor DeSantis is extremely humble. He's extremely uh, driven. And so he doesn't often like to talk about his story. But the reality is Governor DeSantis was raised in a blue-collar family. Um, he was the captain of the baseball team at Yale. He worked himself through Yale and then actually went on to put himself through Harvard Law School. And he had these two Ivy League degrees. And instead of going to, you know, make six figures, doing whatever, after 9-11, he raised his hand uh, and said, I want to serve my country. 
So we went out to Coronado, uh, trained and was deployed ultimately with SEAL Team 1 in some of the most dangerous parts of the world at the time, Fallujah and others, served his country out of this need for service. Uh, then he went on to, to run for Congress. Uh, he obviously became governor. And now he's running for president of the United States because he wants to reverse the decline of this country. Uh, the governor has said on the trail, uh, he's not running to be somebody. He's running to do something. He's running to make uh, the American dream, put that back within reach for so many American families who for so long, it, it, it's not been possible. So that's who he is. He's a dedicated husband uh, to a six, five and a three year old. Uh, he's got a beautiful, amazing wife, First Lady Casey DeSantis, who uh, battled and beat cancer. So he's an amazing uh, American a servant. Um, and so getting that out there is extremely important, I think, um, the bio, because the resume matters and the track record matters. Yeah, absolutely. And Carly, I know you need to run to a meeting, but I'll look forward to uh, continuing this conversation uh, soon with you. So thanks so much for joining. Really appreciate your time. And uh, that really, you know, great um, just just bio and discussion about uh, who Governor DeSantis is, because I think that that is so important. And especially when he said to Brett Baer uh, the other night, uh, that when, when he said, when Brett asked, why do you want to be the president? He said, well, I don't want to be the president. I want to do things as president. And that resonated with me as an American saying, yeah, we need to do a lot of things in this country. So uh, thanks so much for your time this morning. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. And I look forward to, to coming back. All right. Sounds good. Well, uh, Carly, who is Ron DeSantis' spokeswoman, and now I'll turn and welcome in uh, my next guest, Josh Hammer, who uh, you all know and, of course, love on this show. He is the senior editor-at-large and host of The Josh Hammer Show at Newsweek and a syndicated columnist. And, uh, Josh, before we get into, obviously, the Devin Archer stuff that I want to talk with you about, um, I want to ask your perspective on uh, Governor DeSantis and the whole campaign uh, right now because, you know, you and I talk a lot offline about uh, how things are going for 2024. And so what's your perspective right now on where Americans need to focus their attention beyond just the polls and what everybody is suggesting that, you know, hey, this is already done. Let's wrap up and go home. Sure. So always great to be with you, Jenna. So look, I mean, I think from the perspective of someone like myself, who is a fairly open supporter of Governor DeSantis' presidential campaign. Obviously, we would have liked to have seen a little more movement in the national horse race polling in the over two months or so since his launch in late May. I, I mean, I, I think there's no harm in just saying that quite openly and explicitly. Having said that, you know, presidential elections obviously are not decided in a national horse race politic political level. You know, on the ground in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina is ultimately where this thing is won. And, you know, and more importantly, Jenna, it's really early. I mean, like political nerds like me and you are closely following this stuff in the summer before an election year. Most Americans are not. I mean, most Americans really do not start paying attention to this stuff, I think, until at the absolute earliest debate season. And, you know, query whether that will even be the case this year if former President Trump chooses not to debate. I mean, who knows if that will kind of suppress interest in the debate. So the whole cycle, as far as kind of when the median Republican voter is kind of getting his or her antennae raised and starting to pay attention, it's very it's it's hard sometimes for those of us like me and you who are so plugged in, so in the weeds to try to kind of. Understand that most people, I mean, I was looking at a poll just earlier this week. I was looking at the New York Times 
Siena poll, which got a lot of attention, which I think had Trump up 37 points in the, in the national horse race over DeSantis or something like that. And, you know, if you look at the percentage of Republican primary voters who say that they do not know enough about Ron DeSantis, even have an opinion yet, I, I think it was around 15 percent, I, I roughly, give or take. I can't remember the exact number. And, you know, again, you and I might find that hard to believe, but the point is that, like, most people are just focused on getting bread on the table. They're focused on, you know, paying less of the gasoline pump on basic day-to-day concerns. It's too early for most people to start caring about this stuff. And, you know, as we get closer and closer to the election, Jenna, and I think some of the real tangible issues that are facing this country on the home front and abroad and around the world start to be clarified a little bit more for the voters – I think and I suspect that many will start to appreciate that the time is now really for someone who is laser focused, for someone who is singularly dedicated, mission oriented, competent and laser focused on restoring civilizational sanity and on fixing what all of that is broken from an economic and cultural perspective, really across the spectrum and someone who is less distracted by all of these legal issues, whether they are legitimate or, as is often the case, illegitimate. And, you know, that's why I, I still hold out some, some optimism for the governor and what is to come. And I think, Josh Hammer, that's uh, that's really wise uh, looking at kind of the bigger picture, because I think the day to day drama in the news cycle, um, the average American is just really really exhausted with, uh, frankly. I mean, even for for the politicos like you and I, I mean, it just seems like there is so much drama all the time coming out of Washington and then, you know, everything else going on with Joe Biden and the lack of accountability and then, you know, all of these other things that are politicking back and forth. And it seems like uh, if the news cycle isn't something about another indictment um, of President Trump or some, some other bombshell testimony against, you know, Joe Biden's business dealings, then you have these, you know, petty little back and forth on social media between, you know, members of Congress just looking for a news cycle. And I'm thinking, how does that really help me as an American? How does that help the country? How is that actually doing your job in Congress? I mean, some of these things I don't think at all resonate with the the average American that just wants to ignore Washington and have a great country. And so what do you think that uh, that the GOP as a whole, regardless of who the nominee is, um, what can the GOP do as a whole or conservatives to say, you know, th- we need to turn this country around? Because I think that everybody, even if they're Republican, Democrat, left to right, I mean, we see that we're going down a path where pretty soon it's going to be a path of no return. Yeah, it, it very it very much feels that way. I mean, there's a phrase that gets tossed around. Uh, among kind of right-wing activist circles, especially in kind of the very online crowd, which I, for better or for worse, would count myself as a part of. And the phrase is this idea of, quote-unquote, knowing what time it is. And I think this phrase is really getting at the sentiment that you just expressed, which is this country really is going off the rails, and the left is trying to do so at a very, very expedited and aggressive, cutthroat, in-your-face way. It's, you know, this is not your grandfather's Democratic Party. This is not your grandfather's liberal movement or anything like that. And many of us do feel that, um, you know, unless like serious action is is required right away, then you know we really do genuinely risk 
you know, losing this wonderful experiment in ordered liberty that began in America in the late 1700s and that has been bequeathed, has been passed down from generation to generation ever since then. And, you know, if I had one piece of advice for, for Governor DeSantis, I, I, I think what I would say is, you know, his campaign theme is, is the great American comeback. And, you know, I think it's time to start really trying to kind of tie all of the pieces together under that one unifying umbrella. And perhaps most importantly, to try to kind of convey that message in an inspirational manner. And, you know, he's, he, I think he's starting to do it, right? So earlier this week, he had kind of this, this declaration of, of um, American economic independence, I think they're calling it. He had the speech in New Hampshire the plan, which kind of touched on everything from the Federal Reserve to reshoring supply chains to battling inflation to getting 3% GDP growth. It was kind of a across-the-board economic plan. So I think it's time to start connecting that to a lot of what he has already been talking about, which is this cultural cultural war fight against the wokes, you know, which as a Floridian myself, and you're a Floridian now as well, of course, we, you know, you and I have lived through this. We have seen his deep courage and his um, amazing fights to try to restore civilizational sanity here in the nation's third largest state. So I think it's time to kind of connect the dots between this uh, American economic independence, uh, excuse me, American economic independence declaration to kind of the culture war centricity of much of what he has talked about in his Florida record, and then talk about kind of the foreign policy aspects as well. So, you know, he got a lot of he got a lot of pushback, right, for his statements to Tucker Carlson back when Tucker still had his Fox show. This was back in March or April or so. I can't remember exactly when it was, when, it, when it, he gave that statement that was much criticized about the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Personally, I thought that that statement was actually spot on. And I think that kind of – I think that part and parcel of, so to speak, knowing what time it is on the global stage actually necessitates a, a, a realism and a, and a recognition, frankly – that America is not the sole dominant superpower anymore, that, that China has risen tragically, I would say, to that status. And what that means is that we can't necessarily be wasting resources in you know, a faraway conflict with kind of a secondary or tertiary uh, interest when, when it comes to the United States foreign policy, in, in this case, Russia, Ukraine, we should be focusing more on the Asia-Pacific. So anyway... I don't want to go off on a tangent there too much about kind of Russia, Ukraine. But the point is that I think all of these themes can be tied together, right? And when you do that and you start kind of kind of putting some nice, not just nice sounding sound bites, but actually deeply inspirational rhetoric. And, you know, I think it will be wise. This is kind of a funny thing for one conservative to say to another. But Barack Obama did this very well. Barack Obama was, was able very well to communicate his messages, which you and I vehemently disagreed with on the substance. But he did a very good job of communicating his message in a, in a rhetorical way, just his manner of speaking, his eye contact, his hand movements, all the things that go into public speaking and or, oration, oratory skills. He did it in a way that genuinely inspired people. And that above all yeah. is the way that, that inspiration, I think, is what everybody is looking for. I'm talking with Josh Hammer, and we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. 
Welcome back, and I'm talking with my good friend uh, Josh Hammer, who is the senior editor at large at Newsweek and also the host of the really great podcast, The Josh Hammer Show. And uh, he actually did an episode, which is why, you know, Josh, if you send me things uh, that I need to listen to, then I'm going to be like, come on and talk about it on the show. So do that at your own peril, obviously. And I'm only teasing him because, uh, you know, we always send each other things back and forth. But he did this great show that you do need to listen to, uh, the latest episode that was on the Devin Archer and Biden family corruption and a really, really good uh, episode. So, Josh, um, break this all down for us, because I think that a lot of people have been following this um, a little bit tangentially, but they're they're kind of thinking, OK, so we have this this testimony in Congress. What does this mean? And is anything going to actually come of it in terms of accountability uh, to the Biden corruption family? So it's been a little hard, honestly, Jenna, even as a lawyer, to disentangle all that is going on when it comes to the various prosecutions, investigations, and whatnot of of Hunter Biden. And I say that because we just had this plea deal that was purported to have been reached, obviously was not actually reached because we saw how it fell apart in court just last week. But we had this this plea deal that was reached with David Weiss, the federal prosecutor in Delaware, who the media never failed to remind us was a Trump administration holdover. That was their way of you know, trying to claim legitimacy that they would get to the bottom from a legal perspective of all Hunter's misdeeds. So we had the, the DOJ investigation, which lasted five and a half, six years or so, lasted a very long time. And then at the same time, especially since Republicans reached the House in January, we've had various House Oversight Committee, House Weaponization Subcommittee, subpoenas, investigations, things like that. So it's been a little hard to kind of keep it all separate. But, uh, you know, in recent weeks, uh, they seem to have particularly kind of blurred and merged together. So the the plea bargain that that Hunter had reached with, uh, with, with DOJ, with David White, it fell apart for multiple reasons in court a week, week and a half ago or so. And one of the reasons that it fell apart was because the judge in the case, Mary Ellen Norica, who should be applauded. Um, to be honest with you, I did not expect this to happen. I, I thought that, that this would be a fairly straightforward kind of rubber stamp of a, of, of a plea deal. But no, she really kind of applied some serious kind of judicial and analytical rigor. And, and she asked some, some straightforward questions to prosecutors and, and the defense team. And one of the questions that the prosecution and defense team did not even agree upon, which means that the plea deal couldn't have possibly been worth the faux signatures that that were signed in the paper that it was written on. One of the questions that they, that they disagreed upon was, does this plea deal by which Hunter pleads guilty to a misdemeanor offense for tax charges, and then he gets this, this gun charge just totally erased, stricken from his record, does all of this foreclose? Does it prevent the possibility of additional prosecution for far-off Foreign Agent Re- uh, Registration Act or any kind of you know foreign overseas corruption, business dealings, things like that? And amazingly, the prosecutors and the defense team disagreed on that. You know, the prosecution said, no, it does not foreclose that. The defense team said, actually, yes, it was our understanding. So not a good look for the lawyers involved there. And I think that was one of the reasons that the judge in this case, said that the plea deal is no good. You know, you guys take 30 days, get back to us with a real deal. And that, that ties directly into Devin Archer. That, that gets us directly into what was happening on Congress this week. So earlier this week, you had Devin Archer testify in a closed-door hearing before James Comer of Kentucky's House Oversight Committee. 
testify that Hunter would get Joe Biden on speakerphone as basically an intimidation tactic of sorts to kind of to, to, to get his uh, Ukrainian, Chinese or whatever he was working with, his foreign business counterpart, to basically just try to intimidate them into, in, into agreeing to the terms of the various deals, whether it was the $83,000 a month in the Burisma context or whatever he was doing in Shanghai, China, when it comes to private equity. Yeah, he was basically just trying to intimidate them into doing it. And, you know, then it's kind of like a live jump ball right now, Jenna, right? Because we're currently waiting to see what happens with this revised plea deal. Again, the judge gave them 30 days. We are in those 30 days right now. So we'll wait to see what happens. We'll wait to see whether the plea deal explicitly mentions whether or not the DOJ can come back and additionally prosecute potential violations of FARA or other foreign business deals. But it, it would be reckless for Republicans in Congress to rely too heavily upon David Weiss and the DOJ. They need to continue to kind of use their subpoena power, use their investigative power. And yes, if need be, they could always, of course, consider and use the nuclear option for congressional remedies, which is the impeachment power for Joe Biden as well. I'm speaking with Josh Hammer. And uh, Josh, I spoke with uh, Congressman Mike Johnson uh, early on in the first segment of this program. And, uh, you know, his opinion in speaking with uh, with Kevin McCarthy that he articulated is that they are going to pursue uh, their subpoena power. They're going to open a congressional inquiry that is moving forward to impeachment. And it was his opinion uh, that he very clearly said uh, that that it would be a dereliction of duty, basically, uh, that they have no other option in his view uh, than to pursue an impeachment inquiry directly focused on uh, the the Burisma issue and all of these things with Joe Biden's foreign business dealings. Um, and he specifically mentioned uh, Article 2, Section 4, which, of course, lays out that, uh, that a president shall be impeached uh, for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, and so specifically was focused on uh, bribery and that bribery scheme. So um, so in your view, if they do pursue this nuclear option, I think um, a lot of conservatives have kind of said, well, why haven't they already? And this is kind of, you know, it, it coming uh, months too late. We should have been prepared to do this in January as soon as the new uh, Republican majority came on board. But um, where does this sit from, in your view, from both a legal and then also political view. Well, I, I, I first wrote a column calling for Joe Biden's impeachment almost two years ago now, actually. Um, I, I wrote a column after the Afghanistan withdrawal, that, which I supported, by the way. I supported getting out, out of Afghanistan for many years now, going back to, oh, God, I mean, the end of the Obama administration, maybe. I mean, I, I supported getting out, out of Afghanistan for a long time, but, but that was done in such an incredibly botched manner with with zero foresight and these, these horrific images of people falling off the planes as they're taking off the Taliban flag being raised the former U.S. embassy in Kabul. I mean, everything about that withdrawal was just so epically mishandled that I, I actually wrote a column at that time, well, two years ago now, saying impeach Joe Biden. So I, I've been long on the record as saying that the impeachment remedy is is wholly appropriate when it comes to this man who is so clearly and tragically, I would say, so so clearly and tragically, you know, in the throes of, of senility. I mean, this is not someone who, who who really should be in that office for any number of reasons. I mean, for, uh, whether it's the political substance, whether it's just his sheer mental capacity. 
So I, I have no objection whatsoever to to the House to the House filing articles of impeachment for 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 this or for the Afghanistan box withdrawal. I mean, they probably missed the window of opportunity for that, or there's probably other opportunities to potentially file articles of impeachment for this absolutely horrific president as well. But I, I, I mean, I think that it's completely appropriate here in particular if the stonewalling really gets to a certain point. I mean, you know, impeachment really is kind of the nuclear weapon, right? It, it's a nuclear option for, for Congress's suite of remedies. If you think about the various tools that the framers gave the Congress, as a way of checking the executive branch. It's basically the power of the purse. You know, you can defund anything and everything you want to. By the way, I, I, on that note, you know, if House Republicans wanted to actually defund the special counsel, if they want to specifically defund Jack Smith's office when it comes to, to what he has been doing with former President Trump, they could do that. So um, uh, that's a very powerful tool that Congress does not fully exploit is the power of the purse. And then, and then they have the subpoena power, and then ultimately, if none of this goes according to plan, then you have the impeachment tool. And you're right. I mean, the explicit constitutional criteria for, for impeaching a president of the United States are, are you know, treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. The, the, you, most impeachment articles are filed under high crimes and misdemeanors, which is kind of the political catch-all phrase, which Alexander Hamilton roughly describes in – the Federalist number 65 as a, quote, a breach of the public trust. So it's not necessarily kind of a, a, a criminal statute that you have to violate. Y- you could, but it's more just about this kind of broader notion that you have let down your duty to s- safeguard and vouchsafe the integrity of, of the people, of, of the nation state to which you have taken this very solemn oath. But bribery is right there. I mean, the congressman is right. Congressman Johnson is right. Bribery is right there. It is explicit. And that's exactly what it looks like happening here. You know, when it comes to these phone calls with Mikola Zlochevsky, the founder of Burisma, these $5 million payments, which apparently went $5 million to Hunter, $5 million to Joe. And, you know, Jenna, there was this crazy video, right, that, that is now resurfacing. But many of us who were paying attention at the time saw at the time where Joe Biden was at the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, a very kind of swampy neoliberal foreign policy think tank outfit, He's there openly bragging about the fact that he threatened to withhold aid to Ukraine unless they fired Viktor Shokin, the prosecutor who Nikola Zlochevsky of Burisma wanted the Ukrainian government to fire. So, uh, you know, Biden was a gas machine and has been a gas machine for his entire political career for the most part. You know, he, he basically openly admitted to, to doing exactly that which House Republicans are, are, are now accusing him of doing. So I, I'm happy to hear that Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans are getting closer to filing articles of impeachment. I, I, I would like to see maybe a little more kind of use of subpoena investigative power before we kind of get to that point. But I certainly do not object to it whatsoever. Yeah, and and I I remember that video, and that was uh, something that was really played more prolifically across uh, media in the context of the first impeachment of Donald Trump saying, you know, of course he's going to ask what's going on. And of course, uh, anyone who is concerned about American sovereignty and making sure that uh, no one in our highest offices is abusing their power, going against their obligation to solely protect American interests, uh, like what it, it appears to be clearly that Joe Biden is doing uh, with that video. And so I think the the bigger context here should not be lost on people, Josh, that, you know, this has been um, sort of a long-spanning 
uh, inquiry, really, that, you know, starts with the vice presidency of Joe Biden. And then you have, you know, all of these things that have uh, that, that then culminated in some of the, the witch hunts toward President Trump, the first impeachment, dealing specifically with that Ukraine phone call. And now we have, you know, other things that are coming out while Joe Biden is in office. And, you know, the question that I asked um, Congressman Johnson, I want to ask you as well, um, in just the last few minutes we have here, is that, you know, how how does this then look heading into 2024 because there's a legal obligation of course and I and I think he's right that um, that using the at least impeachment inquiry power and then if we get to articles of impeachment if it's a duty under the constitution you discharge your duty I mean kind of period but we can't ignore the greater political context as well of the impact on 2024 and do you think that the timing here is actually more favorable to the Democrats who may want to kind of remove Joe Biden and say, let's, you know, he's become such a liability um, and that it's actually more favorable to them at this point than it is to Republicans? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, I'm kind of sympathetic to both sides of that particular answer, actually. Um, You know, if you go back, Jenna, you know, earlier this year, back in January, People, people have forgotten about this quite quickly, but Joe Biden had his own classified document retention scandal, right? I mean, everyone has, has been paying attention, of course, to former President Trump's own legal scandals when it comes to classified documents with, with the Mar-a-Lago raid and Jack Smith and all that. But President Biden was also, um, you, you know, he was he, he admitted that he was reckless when it came to his, his retaining classified documents that this Chinese Communist Party funded and Penn Biden Center for Global Diplomacy in Washington, D.C., as well as in his garage with his Corvette, if you remember that, in Wilmington, Delaware. And, you know, my read on that, if you go back and look at the timeline, because it, it, it looks like prosecutors first became aware of what Biden was doing with these classified documents around the time of the 2022 midterm elections last November. But the fact that it didn't come to light until January after the election suggested to me that what was going on was that you had some low-level prosecutors trying to kind of force Biden's hand and get him out of the race for this very reason, that he's a very weak candidate, and the try to shunt him aside to get some, you know, more palatable Democrats in there. But that didn't, that didn't work, right? I mean, Biden basically kind of just blew his way right by that. He announced his campaign in April. He has a very bare-bones campaign right now. It's literally like 20 full-time staffers or something minuscule like that. Uh, I think the Democrats are basically stuck with Biden. Um, I, I think a lot of people definitely want him to to go away. The poll the polls reflect that. Like a very high percentage of Democrats say that they would prefer another nominee. You know, some 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 candidates like RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson are polling a lot higher than you know a strong incumbent uh, would would permit. But, you know, when it comes to impeachment, you know, I think you'd see some of kind of the activist crowd in the left, some of like the MSNBC hosts, the CNN guests. I mean, they would probably get excited about getting Joe Biden aside and kind of getting in Gavin Newsom or whatever. But it it strikes me as something of a pipe dream. And, you know, when it comes to kind of, you know, riling, riling up the base, you know, I do think that Republicans would be riled up definitely by trying to impeach this terrible president as well. Yeah, well, Josh Hammer, always really great comments, and you can listen to his further uh, discussion on this issue and Devin Archer and the Biden family corruption on his show, The Josh Hammer Show, and, of course, read everything that he writes in Newsweek. And you can reach me, Jenna, at AFR.net, and I'll join you tomorrow morning right here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.